Hello, my name's Stuart from Inspiring City and today I'm with Steve Chapman and the reason why we're meeting really is to talk about the concept of outsider art and, and in particular what's, what Steve, Steve does. So, hi Steve. Hello. Outsider art, what's your definition of, of that and do you describe yourself as an outsider artist? Yes, if I've been kind to myself, I quite often describe myself as a professional imposter because I don't have any training in art or most of the stuff that I do. So on that basis that I don't have any training or education or didn't go to art school, I say I'm an outsider artist, which is what I understand outsider art to be. But because I'm an outsider, I don't actually know what the official definition is, so I may even have that bit wrong. So what, what kind of art do you do? What, what, what is it that people recognise you for? Uh, people recognise me for probably three things. It is mainly my Posca pen black and white drawings, um, which are just doodles that I do to express stuff. Free art which is mainly large, brightly painted MDF figures or concepts that are live around cities around the world. And then conceptual art, such as silent podcast and things like that. So they're the, they're the three buckets. <laughs> so let's go back to the, um, the drawings first yeah. of all. So one of the things that, I mean, I've been looking, you, you gave a TED talk, um, I think it's a good few years ago yes, now, and yeah. it was about drawing your inner critic. Yeah. Can you tell me something about that particular project? So that project must have been, I don't know, 2015, 2016. And it, it seemed like a brilliant way of short-circuiting self-doubt that I had about art. So uh, primary school sort of, uh, secondary school kicked art out of me by teaching me how to do it properly. What happened there? What was it? Um, it was, I think it's just you could suddenly get marked for doing stuff. Um, and if you did stuff that was the type of art that I like now is, is, is beautifully wonky and beautifully imperfect, that you get marked down for that. Mm. So there wasn't really, at least at the school I went to, freedom of expression. So if you were trying to be a little bit abstract, a little bit different. Yeah, I love drawing it? people with the spacing between their eyes too wide or too wonky. And I like that. If I, I, I'm always of the opinion, why would I want to go and look at a perfect portrait of you in a gallery? I might rather come and see you in real life mm -hmm. or look at a photo. So I want art to suggest something that you couldn't see anywhere else. But that type of thing at school, not that I was deliberately trying to do that, sort of drummed out of me. And I got a C in GCSE art, which I got a C in GCSE everything. Um, and so I stopped, I sort of stopped drawing them. So the Inner Critic project was just when I started to get back in touch with what happened to that artist. And the short circuiting thought, well, why don't I start drawing the bit of me that says that my drawings are uh, shit? Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, why don't I draw that very self-critical part of me? And I spoke to some other friends who had done that as well. My friend John Paul Flintoff did that regularly. Um, and I've been experimenting in my work in the corporate world with getting like groups of operators that didn't have a voice to do rich pictures of their experience of the workplace. I used to end up drawing these gruesome drawings of chickens with their heads cut off and robots and stuff like that. So I thought I'd take my own medicine and start drawing my inner critic. Um, and what's brilliant is with that, you can't get it wrong because the moment your inner critic starts going, that's not, that's not me, it's like, wow, I've got a bit more of him to draw now. And who is this inner critic then? Who, who is it? It's, um, I mean, it's different for different people. It's, psychologically, it's a superego, that part of us that was there to protect us in early life. So you think when you're a baby, if you lose human contact, you're screwed, basically. Because um, you need human contact. You need your mother, father, or carer, or whoever it is to, to be there for you. So it's designed to sort of keep us socially safe, but then it just gets distorted and perverted. Um, 
And for me, the inner critic was a combination of words of, of parents. I mean, my parents are lovely people, but you can't help, I know now as a parent, you can't help but say stuff that sticks, of teachers, of early work life. So it's a combination of all these introjects of rules about how to be in the world, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. When you start unravelling it, at least for me, no matter where I went or got people to draw their own critics, the message was the same, no matter what country. It's just this mantra of you're not good enough and you're incapable of becoming good enough. But it's not, it, it's not real, it's a, it's a thought. Mm. It's not real, it's not the laws of the universe. And by externalising it, particularly doing this work with clay, and it makes it even more tactile just to make sense of it. And you don't have to hand your homework in. You don't have to hand it in to be marked by anyone. Um, which is again, is another hang up from, from school. Is everything had to be marked. So this was, this was something about, you, you needed to externalize this critic. Yeah, you needed yeah, to yeah. put it down on paper or create something yeah. just to, 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 to give it some form of reality. Yeah, is that what it was? it's to, to see it for what it is. Um, and the more I drew it, the more it changed, the more I, I began to feel sorry for it. It's just like, this is a, this is an odd thing. And I, I started, I forgot about this, I actually made a, I made a puppet of it, was the next step. So I made a puppet, which I can't help doing there, so I could have a conversation with it. And that was, that was the next breakthrough, is, because he'd say, oh, you're a terrible artist. And I'd say, well, where did you go to art school? Surely I was there. And it's, and you sort of get it on the ropes. Then I made a mask of it, so I could, like, inhabit it. And I do a lot of work with masks. I make masks and do development work with masks. So it really is to get into a relationship with it. I'm pretty much a pacifist because I think violence breeds violence and I think that's the same with self as well. Yeah. There's a lot of macho stuff written about defeat, beat up your inner critic, like, fuck your inner critic and all of that. Um, I think you're just doing that to yourself. So I think art creates a dance. It doesn't mean you love it, it still is an ever-present voice, but it creates a dance. It allows you to do Tai Chi with self-doubt, I think. Yeah. And so the, the project then, the inner, the inner critic project, it yeah. sort of evolved into this, this TED talk. How did it become a, a sort of project, if you like? How did it evolve from me yeah, just yeah, writing yeah. it down to a, to a real thing? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's the same formula of all of my projects. I only realised it's a project about a year after starting it. Mm. Um, and even longer after that, I realised what it's about. So I think I probably spoke to a couple of people and said, I've started doing this. And they've said, oh yeah, I've done that, or I'd like to do that. Mm. Um, and then I started bringing it into talks and coaching work with people. So oh, people say, oh, I'm not very good at that. I said, well, why don't you draw the part of you that's not very good at it? Then I started getting people to submit their inner critics. And there's a gallery that's still online now. It's like 650, 700 inner critics from around the world. So it evolved from that, and then probably about a year into it, I thought, oh, this is a project, isn't it? <laughs> and at that point, it's like, well, now, yeah, I'll bring a bit of focus to it. Yeah. And that's where the, the talk came from, really. And uh, earlier in, in the conversation, you talked about, uh, it, use the word imposter. Yeah, yeah. So is there something about imposter syndrome, which, which the inner critic and visualising that inner critic help, helps? Yeah, I think so, because... Um, I'm starting to, and I've not quite got my head around it, make a distinction between feeling like an imposter and feeling like an outsider. Um, an imposter is just the spin you put on it. It's like telling yourself you're not good enough to be there, or the spin society's putting on it. Um, and again, I think just by externalising the inner critic, adding detail to it, only meaningful to yourself. It's a great art therapy technique for just starting to externalise and disassociate, I think, with a lot of that. Uh, 
that mantra that we're the imposter. And moving on from the, the critic work, you talked yeah. about some of the other projects that you've yeah, got. Yeah. So um, we were just talking about this now, and you've done a free art project yeah, on yeah. Hungerford Bridge. So, yes. so tell me something. Oh, right, yeah. Tell me something about so that. Again, it's, it, the free art project started because I was too much of a good boy to do graffiti, because I'd always associated it with vandalism. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to do portable graffiti? Ah, I started making little wooden pieces that I'd cut up on a scroll saw, painting them and leaving them in cities around the world. And people love them. It's like, uh, it's like a treasure hunt. It's like little kids finding Easter eggs at Easter. So I started making them bigger and bigger and bigger and leaving them in different cities around the world. And do they the take world. them? Do they, do they pick them up and take them home and let you know yeah. about them? Yeah, well, um, I think one in ten, I know what happens to them. Mm -hmm. And I started doing it also as an experiment in um, non-attachment and impermanence, to create something beautiful with the sole intention of setting it free, not necessarily knowing what's going to happen mm -hmm. to it. And these pieces have got bigger and bigger and bigger and more ambitious. And then the, the thing that I set up on Sunday was um, I just thought, I just claimed the railway bridge as a gallery. Mm -hmm. uh, so I made a load of pieces on Hungerford Bridge. There's a horrible bit on Hungerford Bridge that is just these spikes to yeah, stop people climbing over. It looks, it, it looks Cold War. Mm. And so I added one piece of free art to it, I made a big pole that I had to install it because it's, it's quite dangerous. You could fall in the river, yeah, you can't reach it. To get to, it's, I yeah, imagine. it's impossible to get to. And then when I put that down, I thought, oh, this looks a bit like a gallery now. Why don't I just claim it? Why don't I just put a flag in it? Imagine if I started doing that, <laughs> like flags on the moon, just this is now a gallery. So I made a sign that says the Hungerford Bridge Gallery of Outsider Art, and then I did two other big pieces. And I walked across the bridge this morning and watching all the commuters, everyone looks at it. Whether they like it or not, doesn't matter. Art is there to be seen and looked at. And I don't know what's going to happen. It might not be there when I go home today, or other artists may add bits to it. Is that your hope, that people would sort of take it on as a yeah, sort of shared I mean, it's, gallery? It's difficult because this is, again, the, part, the great part about giving art away is this experiment in non-attachment. Mm. If another <coughs> outsider artist added something, I go, yeah. But someone equally may add something politically or something that has a perspective on society that I don't share. And then I'm associated with that, sort of, because it's my gallery. Or someone may graffiti the bits that are already put on there. Or someone may throw a brick and knock the heads off one of the pieces and give the suggestions to the audience. <laughs> um, but I need to be okay with all of those eventualities. Yeah. That's part of, the, part of the project and part of the lovely tension that this work, this work does. Um, I already have thought of another piece to put on there because it looks a bit imbalanced the way they're on there. But mm. the main thing is if people walking across the bridge go, oh, that's brilliant. And already my, my gallery, it's been there since Sunday, has had between 1,000 and 5,000 daily amazing, views. Not through choice, because people, if people want to get across the river, they go yeah, across yeah. the bridge. They're just seeing it. Yeah. It's in, 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 in their face. Right? Yeah. And occasionally I see a post on Instagram, because it's got no connection to me. Mm -hmm. I, I look at posts of Hungerford Bridge and occasionally I see pictures of it. Um, and one of them, one of the pieces got a message where he's called Don the Philosophical Duck, which is a duck based on Captain Beefheart. Um, he's saying, um, am I real or is all of this an illusion? And quite a few people have taken a photo just of that little thing. Mm -hmm. So it just makes people stop and think. So this concept of outsider mm. art and outsider artists, is it, is it about invading the sort of public space, just putting something in there and just, I don't know, just putting something into the, into the realm that people aren't used to seeing yeah. and, and so that it might then become a thing or it might... I think it's... Um, I've not thought of it as putting stuff in public spaces. That's one expression of it. But for me, it is 
art as an expression of just making a mark that represents your inner world. It doesn't need to be of any particular standard or, or anything. So if it inspires people, I, I drew portraits in Trafalgar Square of tourists because my portraits were a bit wonky. And not only did I have great fun, I was terrified for most of it, lots of people left saying, I might start doing portraits. I've never thought I was good at portraits. And I've sold portraits for like 20, 30 quid a time that wouldn't be any good. So that's my hope for the outsider art, is it just liberates people to make marks for the sake of making marks. Um, it doesn't have to be anything in particular. This is no longer school. And then if it leads to lots of, lots of pop-up stuff, this is why I love, uh, I've only visited once, but I love Berlin. Mm -hmm. It's like around every corner there's some quirky piece of art that, that rose out of some quite desperate situations. So yeah, that, that would be my hope for it. But the main thing is that um, the outsider artists are able to sit alongside the establishment artists. Neither are good nor bad. We need fine art galleries. But lots of people look at fine art galleries and think, oh, I could never do that and give up on the whole thing. So what you create and you put out into the, the public arena, is that linked to the inner critic thing or is this a new set of uh, characters or, or, or creations that you've, you're putting out there? They're, um, I think the link just comes from that's the lineage of me getting back into art, but then the characters aren't inspired by that. It tends to be if I'm bored or I'm fed up, I'll just doodle something and I'll do like 30 or 40 little doodles and I'll do one and I go, oh, I like that one. I'm going to make that one into a thing. Or I'll go back through my gallery of old drawings and I'll find one that I really like. Or I see a piece of art that I like and then I'll do my own version of that. The idea that all art is theft at some level anyway. Not, not to copy it, but to have my own, my own take on it. Um, so that's where, where they come from. And some of them become particularly popular and repeated. Um, there's a character called this, that guy. It's either called that guy or this guy. I didn't name him that. That I exhibited in Derby Gallery and Art Museum. And he was a massive thing that I painted on the wall next to a David Shrigley piece, which was wonderful to be exhibited. And then Pablo Picasso napkin on the other side. And he gets repeated a lot. Uh, Len, who's on the Hungerford Bridge, and the naturist. Is on the, well, the three characters on the Hungerford Bridge get repeated quite a lot because people commission them. Do you associate yourself with them in any way, those characters? Um, I think maybe they, I hadn't thought about that till you asked, maybe they represent different parts of me. So the naturist originally came from, I was on a day trip to Brighton, and this is the, the naked figure that people can't tell if it's a man or a woman. It was originally meant to be a man. But I was down in Brighton when the Tory party conference was on, and I thought, I wonder if any of the, uh, the really stuck-up Tories go to the nudist beach. So I drew this guy with like a very conservative haircut, whatever that means. Um, sort of looking a bit bashful, and that became the naturist. So maybe that's part of me that is embarrassed by my body and scared of nudity. Not a closet conservative. Not the Tory No, no. <laughs> the duck is just, it gives me an excuse to write these philosophical questions. Um, normally stuff like, uh, everything you see is an illusion, am I real, or that, that type of thing. Um, which is where I become Don the philosophical duck. And then maybe Len is just, I've made a massive head of Len, by the way, mm. that's, that's that big. And I think Len just allows me to do whatever I want to do. And the big Len head, when I get out the guts to do it, is going to go dancing on the South Bank, like busking dancing, because I'm really embarrassed. As in you, you yeah. would Oh yeah, I'll put the head on. Because I couldn't do it, because I still, as a gangly man, I'm embarrassed by dancing. Again, probably about the same age as I got embarrassed by drawing when I was young. But Den can, Len can dance, I know he can, so he's going to go and do it. He's going to bust some moves on yeah. the South Bank. And I think that's the whole thing, I don't, I don't do the art for any other reason than it's, it's my own therapy, mm. to be honest. It sounds really corny and cliched, but I guess that's why most people do it. It's an expression of something. Mm. Um, 
without it having to be anything in particular. The yeah. podcast is an expression of my frustration at noise and distraction. And yeah, this is the silence. Yeah. Silent podcast. Yeah. So it's a podcast. That's literally it, in a nutshell. <laughs> it's a podcast with special guests where I sit in silence with them for two minutes. And that again came from that same subversive place of thinking, I mean, my daughter manages to do it. She's brilliant at it. But she'll be drawing, have the telly on, have headphones in, and then have a film at the same time. And I, I can't cope with that. Um, obviously, the new, younger generations can. But just even the whole thing of walking down the street, people are distracted. So yeah. I thought, what if, similar to the inner critic, the short-circuiting of it, what if I short-circuit this by making a digital download of silence and make that even more compelling by having guests like Terry Waite and Vic Reeves on it? And that's been an amazing project. And how do they respond to that? And how do, do people respond to that project? I mean, the the, one of the first things I put it out, um, so it's been the, out for just over a year. There's only going to be 100 episodes. Episode 40 yeah, 44 went out today. Yeah. I'm glad you know. <laughs> and the day I put it out, I had a tweet from someone I didn't know in America who said, what a load of bollocks. Podcasts have finally jumped the shark. And to me, even though I'd like to say, yeah, and that was wonderful feedback, I really was like, oh, I know maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. But ever since then, I've had a few people saying, this is pretentious nonsense, or this is a load of rubbish, or... But the majority of people just say, this is weirdly compelling. People listen to every episode. People have described it as... Because there's nothing there. People project whatever they want onto it. People think it's about peace, or it's about mindfulness, or it's about mental health, or it's about um, working mothers, because I recorded one with a young artist who had a child there. And yeah, it's all of those things and whatever you want it to be. And I think it's just people can't quite get their head around it. Um, and the fact that I get some people like Vic Reeves, Jim Moyer, who I really admire, and they say yes to it and they get it, makes me think, all right, maybe I'm onto something here. They're a little bit outside of themselves, aren't yeah, they? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they're the types of people that I, I've been having on the podcast. Well, Steve, thanks very much for talking to us on Inspiring City. No, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.